Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Last week, we began a series where walking through the seven I am sayings of Jesus found in the gospel of John. Jesus says things like, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the vine. And so as Jesus says this name, I am, he is not just kind of identifying himself in relation to God somehow, but rather he's taking the divine name, the great I am, upon himself. I am the I am. And so last week we began with looking uh, at Jesus as he is the bread that has come down from heaven. And in a post-truth society, Jesus's words ground us and center us as his people. Today, we're going to look into Jesus's statement where he says, I am the light of the world. So before we do that, I'd like to just pray uh, to center my own self and just for us. All right, let's do that. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for the volunteers that are serving around our church this morning, sound and band and youth group and kids ministry. Thank you that they're not just doing child care and passing an hour, but they're making disciples this morning. Thank you. Thank you that people showed up and set up and turned the lights on and brewed coffee for us to give us a hospitable place to gather and worship you, Jesus. This morning, I ask that you would give me clarity of mind and heart. More than anything, Jesus, I ask that you would be in the center of all that we are doing today. Please capture our attention and our imagination and help us to see beyond ourselves and our circumstances and just this hour this morning, help us to catch a glimpse of you. We have gathered in your name, only in your name, Jesus. And so in faith this morning, we welcome you to church today. Thank you for being a king who would come and be with us. We love you, and we receive your love for us today. You're the light of the world. We pray this in your good name, Jesus, our Lord, through the Spirit, to you, God, our Father. Amen. All right. So, as we begin, Jesus has this famous saying from John chapter 8, verse 12, where he says, I am the light of the world. Every world religion and philosopher at some point uses the metaphor of light to talk about moving from a place of ignorance to a place of being educated, from a place of lostness to some kind of salvific experience, a place of, well, yeah, ambivalence to a place of clarity. And so the metaphor of light is a perfect metaphor, but for me, studying this, honestly, is probably the hardest one of the seven I am sayings. I can understand the bread that comes down from heaven. I kind of can get my mind around that a little bit more. But light is almost like saying I'm the oxygen or something to that effect of going, I can't live without it and yet I never think about it. (laughs) 
until I can't catch my breath suddenly. And now it's the only thing I care about. Light is kind of like that. And so, like I said, every philosopher and world religion uses the metaphor of light to communicate some kind of truth. And so I'll give you two examples, not from the Bible and from people that were not Christians, to kind of show you a bit of that, and then we'll get into Scripture itself. So the first example uh, comes from Plato. You guys ready to go to school? Yeah? Okay. In Plato's Republic, Plato lived roughly 2,400 years ago. And in Plato's Republic, he gave, he gave this metaphor through Socrates, his teacher. He's depicting Socrates and a guy named Glaucon that sounds like a guy from Star Wars or whatever. But Glaucon and Socrates are having this dialogue, and Socrates is essentially talking about what it means to come into the light and the effect that light, when it comes to education, has on somebody. When somebody learns something, it does something not just to your brain, but something to your heart or to your soul, that you begin to have a kind of pity or concern for those who still live in the dark. Okay, there you go. And if you want a copy, go get a copy of The Republic. It's very good, very boring, but... You have to read this at some point in your life in a philosophy of religion or any kind of philosophy class. Let me just read you this parable real quick. And I'll just read not even half of it, but so you get the idea and get your mind around some of this light stuff. Next, I said, compare the effect of education and the lack of it on our nature to an experience like this. Imagine human beings living in an underground cave-like dwelling. This is called the cave for those that haven't read this. With an entrance a long way up, which is both open to the light and as wide as the cave itself. They've been there since childhood, fixed in the same place, with their necks and legs fettered, able to see only in front of them because their bonds prevent them from turning their heads around. Light is provided by a fire burning far above and behind them. Also behind them, but on higher ground, there is a path stretching between them and the fire. Imagine that along this path, a low wall has been built, like the screen in front of puppeteers, above which they show their puppets. And then Glaucon's like, okay, I'm imagining it. <laughs> when Glaucon talks in the parable, by the way, he's always like, yes, oh, wise master. Anyway, then also imagine that there are people along the wall carrying all kinds of artifacts that project above it, statues of people and other animals made out of stone, wood, and every material. And as you'd expect, some of the carriers are talking and some are silent. It's a strange image you're describing, and strange prisoners. They're like us. Do you suppose, first of all, that these prisoners see anything of themselves and one another besides the shadows that the fire casts on the wall in front of them? How could they? If they have to keep their heads motionless throughout life, what about the things being carried along the wall? Isn't it the same true of them? Well, of course. And if they could talk to one another, don't you think they'd suppose that the names they used applied to the things they see passing before them? They'd have to. And what if their prison had also an echo from the wall facing them? Don't you think they'd believe that the shadows passing in front of them were talking whenever one of the carriers passing along the wall was going so? I certainly do. Then the prisoners would in every way believe that the truth is nothing other than the shadows of those artifacts. They must surely believe that. Consider then 
what being released from their bonds and cured of their ignorance would naturally be like if something like this came to pass. When one of them was freed and suddenly compelled to stand up, turn his head, walk, and look up toward the light, he'd be pained and dazzled and unable to see the things whose shadows he'd seen before. What do you think he'd say if we told him that he'd, been, that he'd seen before was inconsequential? But now, because he's a bit closer to the things that are and is turned towards the things that are more, he sees more correctly. Or to put it another way, if we pointed to each of the things passing by and asked him what each of them is and compelled him to answer, don't you think he'd be at a loss and that he'd believe that the things he saw earlier were truer than, one, than the ones that he's now uh, being shown? Much truer. Almost done. Trust me. And if someone compelled him to look at the light itself, wouldn't his eyes hurt? And wouldn't he turn around and flee towards the things he'd, he's able to see, believing that they're really clearer than the ones he's being shown? He would. And if someone dragged him away from there by force up the rough, steep path and didn't let him go until he had dragged him into the sunlight, wouldn't he be pained and irritated at being treated that way? And when he came into the light, with the sun filling his eyes, wouldn't he be unable to see a single one of these things now said to be true? He'd be unable to see them, at least at first. I suppose then that he'd need time to get adjusted before he could see things in the world above. At first, he'd see shadows most easily, and then images of men, and then other things in the water, and then the things themselves. Of these, He'd be able to study these things in the sky, in the sky itself more easily at night, looking at the light of the stars and the moon than during the day, looking at the sun and the light of the sun. Of course, finally, I suppose he'd be able to see the sun, not images of it in water or some alien place, but the sun itself in its own place and be able to study it, necessarily so. And at this point, he would infer and conclude that the sun provides the seasons and the years, governs everything in the visible world, and in some way, the cause of all the things that he used to see. It's clear this would be the next step. What about when he reminds himself of his first dwelling place, his fellow prisoners? And what passed for wisdom there? Don't you think he'd count himself happy for the change? And pity the others? Certainly. <laughs> so in Plato's cave metaphor, he's trying to describe what it's like to learn something. To go from a place of darkness and looking at shadows on the wall. By the way, the word shadows is where we get our word opinion. And in looking at these shadows and then suddenly coming into reality and going, oh, I see. I get it. The way I was looking at the world before is wrong and to come into the light. And then there's a burden placed on somebody to then share what you've learned with those that are still down in the cave. So there's Plato 2,400 years ago. <laughs> then we can move on to this guy here. His name's Bertrand Russell. He's very cool, isn't he? Um, Bertrand, I think all the pictures of Bertrand Russell have him with a tobacco pipe. Uh, but Bertrand Russell was 
from Wales, and he died in the late 1920s, I think. And Bertrand Russell was a mathematician. He was uh, a metaphysicist, a logician, a philosopher. And his big thing was he renounced his Christian faith and spent a lot of his life going on and on about why he was atheist and why he was content in his atheism. And his most famous essay that he presented um, in one college was called Why I'm Not a Christian. And in the essay, he basically goes through epistemological and moral arguments as to why he rejects God, the idea of God in general, but especially Jesus. And he goes through several arguments as to why he thinks it's silly for a civilized society like us to put our faith in God. And this is how he concludes his, um, his essay. Religion is based... I think primarily and mainly upon fear. It's partly the terror of the unknown and partly, as I've said, the wish to feel that you have a kind of elder brother who will stand by you in all your troubles and disputes. Fear is the basis of this whole thing. Fear is mysterious. Am I, am I reading? Did you get this part? Maybe? Like as I'm reading, I'm like, wait a minute. I don't know that I sent this to Mark. It's okay. I love Whatever. So he goes on and on about fear. And he's like, religion is just based on fear and everybody lives their life in relation to God because we're all afraid and we're trying to make sense out of reality. And then let me just read this last, last section then. Here's what we must do. His call for the light, basically. We want to stand upon our own feet and look fair and square at the world. It's good facts. It's bad facts. It's beauties. It's ugliness. And see the world as it is. And be not afraid of it. Conquer the world by intelligence and not merely by being slavishly subdued by the terror that comes from it. The whole conception of God is a conception derived from ancient oriental despotisms. It's a conception quite unworthy of free men. When you hear people in church debasing themselves and saying that they're miserable sinners and all the rest of it, it seems contemptible and not worthy of self-respecting human beings. We ought to stand up and look the world frankly in the face and we ought to make the best we can of the world. And if it's not so good as we wish, after all, it will still be better than what these others have made of it in all these ages. A good world needs knowledge and kindliness and courage. It does not need a regretful hankering after the past or a fettering of the free intelligence by the words uttered long ago by ignorant men. It needs a fearless outlook and a free intelligence. It needs hope for the future, not looking back all the time toward a past that's dead, which we trust will be far surpassed by the future that our intelligence can create. And he's right. We shouldn't go back in the past and romanticize the past and try to, you know, live in a kind of a fear and we need to recover that. Unless the past is the Garden of Eden. Then it's worth longing for something else in this world. So whether it's Plato or whether it's your famous atheist existentialist, they're all saying the same thing. Essentially, is can we get some light on in here? Can somebody please bring some light into this world? In the Bible, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, God is light. Hebrews use idioms all the time. To communicate. That's why your Bible's jam-packed with images and metaphors. 
And so it's, if someone was associated with, you know, I don't know. If someone was associated, say, with like fishing, you could say, you know, so-and-so spends so much time fishing, they basically are a fish. It's that kind of thing. And because light is referenced like that with God, God is, okay, God is so much like the light, you could just say God is light or God is love. But that's not literally what God is. God is not literally light and God is not literally love. These are just the things that best describe who he is as, as the sum total of his attributes. And so when you open up the Bible at the very beginning, we read in Genesis chapter one, let's pull this up, Genesis one, and God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good or literally, and God saw that it was beautiful and God separated the light from the darkness. The very first work God does in creation is he speaks light into being and then says it's good. And he observes it like an artist, looks at something beautiful and is like, this, this is it. It's exactly what I envisioned. And then he separates the light from the darkness. And he calls it good. And throughout the Bible, God is using this image of light for his people. So when they're wandering in the wilderness, there's the pillar of fire. Or David says, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. It's a guide. God is my guide. God is the light by which I orient and can live my life. And then on through the Old Testament, you can get to Isaiah. Let's pull up Isaiah here. Isaiah says of the coming birth of Jesus one day, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So he's speaking of Jesus here. Now, when you start thinking about who Jesus is and who people say Jesus is, one of his best questions was, who do people say that I am? When the answers come rolling in throughout church history and throughout our modern society, you get a lot of takes on who Jesus is. And so here's a, some, like a collection of just a handful of them. Itinerant preacher, a cynical sage, an Essenes righteous rabbi, a Galilean holy man, a revolutionary leader, apocalyptic preacher, a liberation theologian, an occult magician, a Pharisee, a rabbi seeking reform, a teacher of wisdom, you know, on and on and on. Who is Jesus? Islam says that he's a prophet. Hinduism says he's a guru. Uh, some Buddhists believe that Jesus was the Buddha reincarnated. Who is he? You're going to have to answer, or rather... Consult the people who died in giving a testimony of who he said he was and actually read them. C.S. Lewis in his famous, you know, Mere Christianity tells us about the, the Lord and the liar and the lunatic. And many of you have probably come across this paragraph before it at some point. But he just says here, I'm here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. I love that. He would either be a lunic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So for all the opinions about Jesus being a good guy and a good teacher, I just love that C.S. Lewis just tells us, let's not come with any of this patronizing nonsense. He's not a good teacher. He says, sell everything and follow me and get crucified for it. That doesn't sound like a good teacher. Is anybody saying that at UW today? No, that's not a good teacher. He's God. Jesus is God. Hans George Gadamer a philosopher, I promise we'll get to it. But there's a lot that has to be said when you're talking about the light of the world. Hermeneutics, that is the science of interpreting things, is above all a practice, the art of understanding. In what one has to exercise above all is the ear. If you want to get good at reading and you want to get good at interpretation of literature or the events of the world around you, It begins by closing your mouth and listening. So we should just listen to what the scriptures actually have to say about him and tune out all the opinions that everyone has about Jesus for a moment and just listen to the eyewitnesses. So in John 1, let's read the very first verses of John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is not less than God, and he's not attempting to be like God. Jesus is God. And this preposition, in, if you mark your Bible, you're going to want to circle that. Not through him or by him. In him was life. Meaning, life does not exist independent from Jesus. Stars, cells, angels, animals, people, anything that we would look at and say, this is living. The claim of the scripture is that all of that has its origin in Jesus. Everything. Everything exists first and foremost as a byproduct of Jesus' generosity and sharing life with creation in him. Okay. We doing okay? I know it's a lot. From Plato to Bertrand Russell, it's like, okay, got it, got it. I know. I get so many death stares, and either you're with me or against me this morning, but you gotta, boy, this is tough because it's so narrow. When Jesus says this statement, listen to this. John chapter 8, verse 12. 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Islam is darkness. Buddhism is darkness. New Ageism is darkness. Self-actualization is darkness. Living according to our own will and our own way is darkness. And pluralism isn't kind. Jesus and Jesus only is the light. The light. Anything good in this world, anything good in this world can thank Jesus for it. That's his claim. Anything beautiful, anything good, anything true, all finds itself in reference to Jesus. Like all the prophets and the apostles in the New Testament, at very best, those are just moons reflecting. And even the best of the saints on down through the ages, whether it's Mother Teresa or a Dr. King, all those are just little candles. Jesus, though, is the light of the whole world. I, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me Not he who admires me, he who quotes me, he who thinks about me from time to time, he who agrees with me when it's like politically okay. No, he who follows me, follows, meaning someone has decided I give up on my vision of life and I'll take yours instead. With your only life to go, you can have it. Wow. This is what the Bible is calling us to do, is to give our lives over to Jesus in following him. And friend, today, if you don't know Jesus, the scripture is crystal clear. You're walking in darkness. You're walking in darkness. You just are. And it's like, well, I got got plenty of money in the bank. I didn't ask about your bank account. Well, I have some good relationships. I'm not asking about your relationships. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm moral and I think I do the right things. The Bible says, no, you're in darkness. You're in darkness and it's buying you some time right now. Or you're buying yourself some time with those kind of little things, those little lies we tell ourselves. But to have the light of Jesus quite literally means that you can live a life that is transparent, without secrets. And you can walk in integrity and you can find that integrity itself is the reward, not trying to get something else out of your integrity. Just keeping your integrity is the win. See, everybody's content to quote Jesus. Read the Vedas. Read the angel in, in the Quran. Everybody's down to quote Jesus, but notice how Jesus quotes nobody. He's his own footnote because he's the light of the world. He's not referencing anyone. And the only time he does reference somebody, he's like, oh, you heard Moses say? Here's what I say. <laughs> wow. 
He's just not referencing anybody else because he's his own reference point. As the capital T truth, that's what you get to do. (laughs) Anybody else that writes a book or a dissertation has to show where they got their work from and all the little endless footnotes, not Jesus. (laughs) He just says, I'm the light of the world. And let me tell you, in a society like ours that feels so weary every single day, we are tired, we are anxious, we're violent, oftentimes we're afraid, we're nervous, we're wondering if we get it, what if we got it wrong, and on and on. Jesus says, I'll give you me He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you don't know Jesus, you can place your faith in him very simply by saying, Jesus, I give up. I accept your vision for my life. Help me walk in the light. And he will. It doesn't mean you'll know it all, obviously. But you will know him. And having the light of life, it's one thing when everything seems to be going your way. But having the light of life is the thing that will get you through the dark night of the soul. When those reports come back, when those questions rush in, when that experience happens, when that person walks out, when these people say this thing about having the light of life, Hmm. but it's not only just to evangelize, like to, to bring people into the faith. Having the light of life It's for the ongoing Christian experience. Brennan Manning, who made a tremendous impact on me years ago, um, my friend Kevin uh, mailed me a copy of the Ragamuffin Gospel, and it changed my life. Brennan was an alcoholic and never really found a way out. He would get sober for a bit, but then fall back. But he never let go of the grace of God. And he continued to build his life in reference to who Jesus is and what Jesus says about him, regardless of his addictions and his missteps and all the blunders that he made that are so common to all of us too. And I think that's why he he gets at your heart in a way that maybe Plato doesn't. Here's what Brennan has to say about having the light of life. This is really, really good. The temptation, this by the way, comes from chapter seven. Paste jewelry and sawdust hot dogs. (laughs) The temptation of the age is to look good without being good. Imposters in the spirit always prefer appearances to reality. Rationalization begins with a look in the mirror. 
We don't like the side of ourselves as we really are. And so we try cosmetics, makeup, the right light, and the proper accessories to develop an acceptable image of ourselves. We rely on the stylish disguise that's made us look good or at least look away from our true self. Self-deception mortgages our sinfulness and prevents us from seeing ourselves as we really are. Ragamuffins. The evil one is the great illusionist. He varnishes the truth and encourages dishonesty. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth has no place in us. Satan prompts us to give importance to what has no importance. He clothes trivia with glitter and seduces us away from what's real. He causes us to live in a world of delusion, unreality, and shadows. The noonday devil of the Christian life is the temptation to lose the inner self while preserving the shell of edifying behavior. Suddenly, I discover that I'm ministering to AIDS victims to enhance my resume. I find that I renounced ice cream for Lent to lose five excess pounds. I drop hints about the absolute priority of meditation and contemplation to create the impression that I'm a man of prayer. At some unremembered moment, I've lost the connection between internal purity of heart and external works of piety in the most humiliating sense of the word, I've become a legalist. I've fallen victim to what T.S. Eliot calls the greatest sin, to do the right thing for the wrong reason. You see, having the light of life means you don't have to fake it or put on or pretend to do good works to be seen. You know, like he says, the temptation of the age is to try to look good, but not really be good. I just want to look good online. I want to look good in front of my church. I want to look good in front of my friends. I want to look good, but I don't want to be good. That's the temptation. And yet having the light of life says something to going, I can be honest about my victories and my failures. Having the light of life means you don't have to have any secrets. You don't have to delete your history because there's nothing to hide. Having the light of life means you can be known. It's such a gift. When Solomon talks about integrity, he says, essentially, the man who walks in his integrity walks securely. If you've got no secrets, there's nothing to be nervous about. It's like, but what about all of us that do have secrets and skeletons in our closets? Jesus sees all the skeletons in your closets, and as the light of the world, he was snuffed out in your place for your sins so that you could become the righteousness of God. And one of the first things we get to do as followers of Jesus is simply confess our sins to one another. Not just in private to him in our own head, but we can actually go to a friend or our spouse or whoever we've wronged or whatever and begin to say, here's what I'm struggling with. This is the real me. It's not all of me, but I'm struggling with this right here. Can you pray for me? Could you tell me the gospel again? 
That's the good news that we have as followers of Jesus is that we don't have to put up and pretend anymore. Let rest of Seattle do that. As followers of Jesus, we can be known and know others in the way that God has called us to so that we would find ourselves flourishing as his image bearers. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5. Awake, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. And the light of Christ will shine on you. I assume a whole lot of us in here are Christians and a whole lot of us are pretty tired and pretty weary with our faith right now. It's October. It's going to be dark till the end of time. But I want to encourage you, if you find yourself in a place where you're weary in your faith and you're struggling, my friend Nate Burke, my friend Nate told me one time his favorite line in the hymn Amazing Grace is how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. I remember one time we were walking in Fremont right by this like little purple boat and he goes, I have to go back to that hour a lot because I get so discouraged and so frustrated. I have to go back to that hour, the hour I first believed. Do you remember when you first placed your faith in Jesus? If you're weary in your faith, that can be one of the greatest things to jumpstart and reignite walking in the light. The hour I first believed when Jesus found me like that and loved me as I was. Do you know that his heart hasn't changed toward you? That he still wants you? And that you can walk with him? Okay, that's all I got for today. Thank you for listening. Love you, church, very much. I, I'm so thankful uh, that I get to walk with you, not just as a leader and a pastor, but as a brother, as a fellow follower of Jesus. And I'm telling you, I need the light as bad as any of you. <laughs> so would you just pray for me as I pray for you this morning that we would just walk in the light? Let's pray, and then we'll continue in worship and receiving communion. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for being the light of the world and not holding the light or withholding the light from us, but rather coming into the world to illuminate everything. Thank you that when your light comes on, it is not with the intention of shame or guilt or fear, but when the light comes on, it is only with the aim of healing, of welcoming, of restoring, of saving. Thank you, Jesus, that when you turn the light on, you don't just expose us and leave us there, but you turn the light on to clean us and to heal us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Help us to follow you, no longer walk in the darkness, but in the light of life. I pray for my friends here today that don't know you, that they would come to know you and they would renounce the darkness and walk with you. I pray for my friends here today that do know you, 
but are confused or feel like the light has gone dim, I pray, Jesus, that you would blow the clouds back and let light shine on us again. Help us to go back to the hour that we first believed. Reignite faith in us. Thank you for hearing our prayer. We pray this in your good name, Jesus, our Lord.